Welcome everyone to another episode of Kiwi Talks. My guest today is a 20-year veteran in the game industry who's worked on games such as Donkey Kong Country Tropical Freeze, Uncharted 3, Mass Effect Andromeda, and more. He's currently art director at Fuzzy Bot. He is Eric Kalowski. How you doing? <laughs> hey man, what's going on? I'm doing good. Good to hear, good to hear. Thanks, thanks for taking time out and doing this. Absolutely. Yeah, I know, I know uh, game designers and and even artists are always busy, I'm sure. Eh, you know, it <laughs> comes in waves. Right now, we're uh, at my job, we're in a kind of like a nice steady period of things. GDC was a bit of a hectic kind of buildup. Uh, but once we hit that milestone, things at work have been kind of chill for now. And they'll probably start ramping up again in the summer. So, so right now is actually the perfect time. So that's good. Um, that's good. Yeah, I suppose so. the release of a game is the worst time because that's usually when the deadline is looming in. You got all the crunch yeah, and all of that. It depends. Yeah, it depends. It, it uh, that's usually like the hardest tech when you have like a hard deadline. It's like all right, we got to get this done. But you could have internal milestones where it's like, if you're working with a publisher, they may want to see like a specific kind of milestone build. Um, you could just have an internal kind of deadline that you everyone wants to hit. Um, and you're just kind of putting your own stress on yourself to hit something. You don't even have like an outward presence pushing in on you. So it just depends. But in general, yeah, usually like when you're leading up to ship is, is usually the worst of it. But it could it could strike at any time in, <laughs> in game development. So Right. So how are you supposed to prepare like your uh, your leisure time then if some, if some sort of curveball happens? Uh, you know, curveballs are anomalies but most times in a, in a well-run studio you know you have your production set pretty well where you can anticipate if something big is coming up you know so like again to use the most recent example of you know gdc you know we knew that coming off of christmas break that you know january february and part of march were going to be pretty you know hectic kind of weeks leading up to to, to that event um so you know everyone kind of balanced their schedule around that and we still had you know um you know, we still had President's Day off here in the States, mm. um, you know, holidays. Uh, so it wasn't like, oh, my God, you know, like there was no crunch whatsoever. But it was more like, hey, we have like specific deadlines. So, you know, if you're going to take vacation, take it after um, that kind of thing. So, you know, there was no surprises. Everything's planned in advance. And and I think that's something that studios have gotten better with with time. You know, some studios are still, you know, crunch heavy and do bad at management. But I know for FuzzyBot, we, we try to plan things pretty far out in advance so there's no surprises so everyone knows okay you know mm. like now's not a good time and and i told my artists you know at any time if they're feeling burnt out like take a day off like fuzzy bot like my company we have a really generous pto policy so if if the schedule you know allows for it like i have no problem with artists taking it just like a personal day for mental health or whatever um and you know everyone's always responsible with their work so there's no kind of like oh my god i'm in the works now because an artist needed to take a day off type of thing so um so yeah so we manage it well that hasn't always been the case with other other studios i've worked at but yeah you know yeah I've, I mean. I've i've heard some horrible stories from devs i've spoken to over the years so uh yeah um anyway i wanted to ask you about your first day at retro studios because from what i understand because from what i understand is you were chucked in the deep end from the first day right you didn't even know you were working on donkey kong until the first day you were there yeah that's correct it was one of the first times i think the only time i actually have ever joined a studio without knowing what i was gonna be working on you know like i i kind of went purely on the reputation of retro because i'm like this is nintendo i mean like, i'm gonna be working for nintendo they could be working pretty much on any ip within the studio and i'd be thrilled you know well 
given a couple of, <laughs> of exceptions, but but for the most part. So yeah, I knew uh, shortly after I was hired, uh, it was announced that that Retro was working on Mario Kart Seven. So I'd assumed that okay, I'm going to be working on Mario Kart Seven, but right. that wasn't the case. I came on board, and the the whole team was working on. Mario Kart 7, except for me and one other artist, we were the only two who were working on Tropical Freeze. Um, we, we didn't even have a name then. It was just, you know, Returns 2. Um, so, so yeah, I came in that day and was like, oh, I'm working on the next Donkey Kong game. And the rest of the team were, were working hard on finishing up uh, Mario Kart 7. Um, and I was a little jealous. I wanted to work on Mario Kart 7. Um, it looked like such a fun project. Um, I'm a huge fan of, like, low-poly aesthetic. Um, but yeah, but it was also really fun to be part of Donkey Kong from the ground up because this was also the transition into HD, mm. which you know Retro hadn't done before. They, you know, you, they had been working pretty much on GameCube technology from you know the, the inception of the studio up until that point. So I had come from you know working at Naughty Dog, working at a um, uh, Double Fine, so I had experience working on HD games, and so that transition was going to require a lot of like R&D like what does Donkey Kong look like in this you know higher res with normal maps and 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 all the bells and whistles of the time um and how does the rest of the team get up to speed with that um so so yeah it was kind of a fun R&D period before we really got into building out levels and and kind of like solidifying what the game was even going to be um you know what what the themes were going to be you know like at that point we didn't even know like that it was going to be this kind of globe trotting adventure, you know, everything was still up in the air. Um, and it was kind of coming on board from, you know, the creative director and, and the weeds and stuff like that as it went. Um, but by the time the team rolled off of Mario Kart 7 onto Tropical Freeze, like a lot of that had been established. And then we hit the ground running and started doing some like, uh, you know, the first thing that as a team we all did was work on the mangroves um, and kind of like try and take a little vignette of what that's going to look like and kind of say, okay, here's what a tree is going to look like in HD or, you know, this is what the style is going to be. Um, you know, famously, like my good buddy, Sean Horton, he had come up with what the palm trees looked like in tropical, and uh, excuse me, in returns. And so that was like a nice kind of like benchmark of like the art style of like, well, what is, you know, what is our tree shape language going to look like in tropical freeze? You know, like what is that new look going to be? And so starting with like a tree seems like a simple kind of thing to do from an environment style but i was like okay if we can get the style of this then we could start to propagate that to other elements and of course there was a lot of elements from returns that that art direction that carried over you know like we had to make this look like that game but but nicer looking yeah. so a lot of that carried forward but there were new things that we had to figure out along the way as well so um so yeah so like me and um uh elvin schaefer uh we were the first two artists kind of on on that ground floor uh while the rest of the team was on on uh mk7 um and and yeah and then kind of figured out as we went so was there a little bit of an intimidation factor though like yeah overwhelmed an imposter syndrome i suppose even on your first day when you're given this massive ip and particularly yeah, because mean, you were one of the few people working on it as well totally i mean you know Imposter syndrome is something that chases every artist. I mean, I feel it even in my day to day now. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm 41 uh, and and I still feel it all the time. Oh, you don't um, know 41. Oh, thank you. <laughs> could be actually, I'm going to be 42 in two months. <laughs> uh, um, but uh, but yeah, you know, um, yeah, it's intimidating. You know, it's like you come in and 
there's this oh you know this guy had worked on some big name games before you know so there's a, a little bit of attention neogaf had done some like linkedin kind of pilfering and been like oh my god retro hired an artist from naughty dog and a character artist from vigil games and they started piecing together all these conspiracy theories so like there was all <laughs> all that on top of it and it was just like i don't know i'm you know gonna just do my best but uh but yeah you know there's always kind of a a pressure that every artist puts on themselves to do the best that they can and sometimes that gets in your head and you start to be overthink things but you know as a team i think everyone was like supportive and and we kind of like vibed off each other's art you know i would see you know ted do something or sean do something or matt do something and be like oh my god that's great i'm gonna riff off of that or that's really cool you've solved that problem now i can focus on something else you know like there were all these kind of like interlocking kind of um elements that just came together and we just worked really well as a team and i think that's why the game is so seamless mm. it is it, it very much is i know when i spoke to ted he said that his strength was mechanical stuff in terms yeah of, uh, what what is yours uh, organics i, I, I and oh, and that's, i that's yeah great. well i mean i would say like for me it's it's um architecture but but more of like uh prehistory architecture so like doing like temples and castles and ruins and oh, stuff like right. that and, and and um but I, I like to do a bit of everything you know like ted and i really jammed together on one of the first things we did on the mangrove level was i built this like big steamship and since i was like uh well versed in zbrush um i did a lot of the normal mapping for that and ted is really solid at texture work so i handed that off to him and then he kind of like kind of like punched up all of my textures and then eventually he was just on his own doing his own textures as well like once he got in the groove of using zbrush and kind of the the high-res uh te techniques and stuff like that so we kind of collaborated on that i think we also collaborated on like a submarine and an airplane um so him and i collaborated on a lot of like yeah like he had a really good eye for the mechanical stuff so like i would model it out do some really rough textures and then he would be like all right cool i got this and i'm sure he just like replaced some of the textures that i did um like flat out but we worked really in tandem on, on a lot of that stuff. And then, um, and then, yeah. And then I think, as he said, um, we worked together a lot on the Al uh, Alps uh, kind of uh, environment a lot together too. Um, and him and I brainstormed like a lot of the visual language of that. I, I don't know if, I don't know who came up with it. I don't know if it was him or him and I, or, or if it came from somewhere else, but the idea of like having this owl theme, um, it might've came from him and I, it might've came from even him. I just can't remember, but like, we were like, let's just put like as much like owl theming into the art as we could. So like we came up with like, all oh, the roof shingles should look like feathers, you know? And then like, we should do like all these, like, uh, you know, like, uh, totems that kind of like have like owl motifs on them. And we, we built in some Scandinavian reference cause it's in, it's in, and then some Swiss reference. And so we were kind of like doing a lot of things, but it was just like, I'm going off on a tangent now from your original no, no, question. No, no, that's, 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 it's still interesting. <laughs> but yeah, but, but it was like just a very collaborative. And that, that was kind of the organic flow of working on that project. It's like, yeah, people had their strengths and, 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 and whatnot, but it just kind of like flowed easily. And then you would pick up on someone else's strengths and that would kind of, you know, increase your skills. And like, you know, textures have always been one of my weaker kind of skill sets, but like working with someone like Ted, like I learned a lot. 
and mm. kind of like punched up my skill set a little bit on that. And um, yeah, you know, so it was mm. a, it was a fantastically collaborative process. So you know how you mentioned how you like to design ruins and temples. Mm-hmm. Would you make pitches to the designers to include more of it, just so you had an excuse to? Well, draw I mean, them, it's, I, draw them again, more? like architecturally, like anything like architectural, I like. So I'll give you a prime example. So Windmill Hills, right? Um, you know, the way the level would start is we we would always have like a kickoff. So the designer would design the gimmick of the level. In this case, spinning platforms. Right. So I'm pretty sure the windmills was pretty decided on pretty early on. And as we get to like the middle of the level, the designer had like all these like windmills, like in a vertical section. And I was like thinking to myself, like, how am I going to design this from an art standpoint to have like these windmills going like this? And I'm a huge fan of Castlevania. And I'm like, what if we do our version of like the, you know, Castlevania always has a clock tower. And I was like, I want to do like a clock tower, the Donkey Kong version of Castlevania's clock tower. And so I pitched like, what if you go inside a giant windmill and you see all the platforms are on the different gears that are moving the the windmill around. Ah. And so that that's how that section of the level kind of was birthed is because I suggested that we do like a giant clock tower because I wanted to have my Castlevania moment. <laughs> um, so that that's exactly how that was born. So like a lot of times that's what the kickoff meeting would be. It would be the designer, the lead designer, myself, the art lead, any animator who'd be doing animated bits inside the level. And we would they would play through the level and say, okay, you know, like this is this happens here and this happens there. And as they go through, we would start brainstorming how the level is going to look, what are the different ideas that we want to do. Um, and then equipped with all of that, I would go back to my desk and I would start working and arting up the level. And then we would have another, I think it was about a month per level. And so after two weeks, we would have a check-in. We would play through, look at the progress of the level. How it's, you know, is this moving in the right direction? What could be improved? How is this looking? Um, and if that was all thumbs up, then I would go through, finish the level. And then we would have a final playthrough and see if everything was, you know, copacetic and given the thumbs up. And, and then of course there would be a polish pass later on, but, um, that was pretty much how it went. And, um, so that initial brainstorm meeting meant there was a lot of like ideas just hitting there. And like, as Ted had said, we didn't have concept in the beginning. So a lot of this was like, like I said, the Alps, like we had no concept for that. So we were just like, all right, we're just going to invent this whole cloth, you know? Um, but again, like to, to say your question about the temple, uh, the first level I worked on on the Alps was um, uh, the rocket barrel stage where all the cheese wheels are happening. Rodent Ruckus, uh, I think it's called. Yeah, that's a, such and, a cool level. Cool. And if you notice, there's temples in the background where all the cheese is stored inside the giant temples. And so that was, again, I was like, well, screw it. I'm going to make like these giant like <laughs> owl temples in the background where the, these rats are storing all their cheese. Um, so yeah, the, from the environment side of things, we had a tremendous creative freedom, um, to, to do a lot of fun stuff. So, um, yeah, it, from was, an, it was pretty, pretty rad. Yeah. Sorry. From a environmental standpoint, were the levels where there's the destructive terrain, were they much harder to do than the standard levels? Uh, like you say I mean, with the cheese, the, I think it, in one of the levels you did the lava one, wasn't it? With the, with, oh, where you're yeah, on Rambi, which, which is insane. Uh, yeah, that was a rough level. And then that was 
during crunch at the end of the project. So I didn't have, I think I only had two weeks to do that level instead of the what? entire month. Yeah. So it was, but also at that point you have a lot of assets already built. Yeah. So you're not, you're not building things from scratch. You're piecing together. It was still tight, but it, it wasn't like I was starting from zero and having to model and texture everything. It was like, okay, you know, we have ice uh, structures from the previous, you know, snow levels. So I'm going to go grab that and, and make that. And every now and then I'd have to model something completely new or take a pre-existing mesh and, you know, reconfigure it to what I want it to be. But, but to answer your question, like destructible is always more challenging because you have to build it in pieces or you have to break it apart and, and make sure that it, you know, connects seamlessly so that it looks like it's whole, but a lot of that you would be like, okay, how does this break apart? Um, and it was all canned. It wasn't like, you know, Call of Duty where you're shooting at a wall and it's all happening procedurally based on your bullets. Mm. This was, we knew exactly how it was going to break and then an animator can animate it breaking when you hit it and yeah. specific things like that. So it wasn't as difficult as say, okay, I have to break this up in all these little pieces and then the game is going to decide how it breaks. A lot of that now is done with programs like Houdini. It's like way outside of my kind of technical know-how. <laughs> I don't even pretend to understand that. That's a whole technical wizardry there, but um, it's gotten even more advanced than that where a lot of it can be procedural, um, you know, given the right know-how. Right, right. So what was your experience like working with Tanabe, for example? Like the Japanese designers... Um... Yeah, I mean, he was great. I, I, my interaction was limited. Again, he was more focused on design. Uh, you know, every interaction I had with him was pleasant. He signed my my Hyrule Historia. Um, nice. Because he, he worked on Link's Awakening, which is one of my favorite Zelda games. Uh, mm. And so I got him to sign that. But he was, he was uh, you know, super nice guy. Uh, you know, I mean, but, you know, Nintendo has very strict standards when it comes to design. So I remember specifically, this wasn't a direct interaction that I had with him, but he had come in <coughs> and uh, there was a, I'm trying to remember what level it was in particular. It might've been Windmill Hills, but the level was either too long or not long enough, one or the other. And so I had finished the level and they had just come and said, no, like it needs to be expanded. So I had to just go in and like tear the level up and now like, you know, reintroduce new art, stitch together where the old art originally ended and like, you know, but then so like normally you make those decisions before art happens because it's it's a lot of rework to do that. But mm. if the game wasn't working, if the design wasn't working, then art be damned. You have to you have to go back in and, and kill your baby, so to speak, as the term goes, and 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 kind of redo some part of it. And that was kind of the mandate from NCL. Um of of uh of you know design always wins out you know even if the art is already done you know they they were willing to to you know you know put a put a you know a spike in the wheels to to stop the the machine from running in order to make sure that the design was perfect and um so you know that was I didn't work directly with him in that regard but you know I remember when that came in I was like oh my god you're kidding me I gotta I gotta redo all this you know and it's like all right you know pull up my sleeves let's let's get to work kind of thing so um so but, but my my personal was he was great yeah from a uh structure standpoint were you doing levels based on how it's played in the game or were you doing it completely out of sync so you could be working on oh, one no, level I... from one world and then another level from oh yeah totally i mean we we did it in chunks i mean originally up until the very end uh originally 
bright savannah was going to be the second world not not autumn heights so oh. like things were we were moving the where levels went based on on play tests and what felt more challenging but um yeah because i did a couple i didn't do any I didn't do any levels in the mangrove, but I did like a bunch of art assets in there. So I did a bunch of the mangrove trees. I did the steamship, which eventually was kit bashed into other uh, elements in the in the level. And then I moved on to Alps, and then they would move me on to like another. So like yeah, I would jump around based on like what level was designed and where that kind of okay. Eric is finishing up this level and this design is done with this level. So let's move them here. And now granted, they would keep artists on levels they had familiarity with. So like I knew, you know, cause I had developed a ton of the look on the Alps. So I, I did a lot of those levels. Um, they had me do, um, I didn't touch any of bright Savannah. So any of the, the kind of like Savannah levels, I didn't do any art on any of those. I, um, wow. that's the only, that's the only world I didn't do any art in, um, the, I didn't make any levels in the underwater world, but I did do the kit that artists used to create the levels. So all of the weird pre kind of history, again, temple stuff of like the weird statues and kind of like ancient Atlantean kind of architecture that I came up with and I developed that and concepted that. And cause again, I wanted to do some cool ruins and stuff like that. So I came up with the little banana motifs on the texture and stuff like that. And came up with this kind of like pixel cubic kind of look for all of the stones that went in the background. Um, so I created this kind of like uh, Maya file that had all of these art elements into it, a bunch of coral and stuff like that. And then, this way, when an artist was making a level, they could pick and choose, oh, I want to use this statue from here and I want to use this kind of coral here. And so they wouldn't have to make that themselves. They could just use the kit. And we would do that for every we would do that for every world. We would do like a kit level, which isn't a level that you play. It's just a level showing the artist, hey, here's how these elements can be used in, in, a, in a map. And so like one of the um, levels that uh, Ted worked on, um, was a in the uh Seabreeve Cove world where there's lightning striking all of these ruins. Mm. And I remember he took one of the statues I made and like he totally like reconfigured it and like redid it and like made a completely new statue with just the elements that I had made and it looked amazing. Like he had rethought like how to just using the kit that I had kind of made. And artists did also I didn't do the entire kit. I just want to make that clear. Other artists kind of had had worked on elements of that kit and that's usually how it went um and to give a counterpoint to that on um the jungle level with all the juicing i didn't really make any of that kit so that was an example where other artists had made that kit and then i made levels using their kits oh. and so i would i would piece together their stuff and be like oh cool they have this big you know uh water tower and i want to use that water tower in my level so i'm going to take that water tower and then this kind of becomes more world building there or I'm like, oh, cool, there's all these like cool redwood beams and I'm going to take these redwood beams and then make a new platform out of them. So, you know, it was a lot of that. So sometimes you would be making a new asset completely from scratch. Other times you would have all the assets already made and then like a puzzle, you would take them and configure out your level and, and kind of use the elements to best. And when you got into a situation where the kit didn't fit, then you'd be like, all right, now I have to make something new because the kit isn't, you know, 
kind of like feeding into what I needed to, to do. Um, and so that's kind of how it went. Um, and so, yeah, you would be jumping around from level to level, um, you know, so. You must learn so much from your peers, right? You must be writing stuff down and watching what they're doing. I mean, not so much writing down, oh, but just, like just observing. Just some or, or, sort of mental note, yeah, I suppose. Observing or even just like opening up a, a, a Maya file from, from something that someone worked on, you know, like um, I got to work on uh, uh, Aqueduct Assault, which is one of the later levels in the game, which is based on a level from Donkey Kong Country Returns. So I got to open up some of the levels from Donkey Kong Country Returns, which I didn't work on, and just seeing how those levels were constructed you're like, oh, oh, okay, they're doing this. They're, 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 you know, they're faking perspective and they're doing cool tricks here. And oh, I see. And like, oh, okay, I'm looking at this texture and I'm like, I see. You know, and it's like, so you learn just by seeing. And and you know, it's a great shame that the game industry is so secretive sometimes because like sometimes, you know, I, I learn from just seeing other people's art. And a lot of times, game studios don't want you to share the raw, you know, file. They, they yeah. You know, you know, in particular, like when we finished uh tropical freeze and we wanted to share our, our art on like art station you know like a lot of that had to be vetted on what we could show like i couldn't like show um you know like a, a maya file wireframe or stuff like that and and so like it, it had to be like finished art from the game kind of thing you couldn't really lift the rock and show all the you know the warts and everything like that um to confuse my metaphors but but um so, you know, like, like just being able to see uh, other, you know, like methods of making games from other artists, like you learn so much. And then, you know, like there were, there were people there who had worked on the Prime series, you know, so you're talking to them about like, oh man, why, how did you do this? Like, you know, like talking to Matt Manchester or Sean Horton or, or Elbin, who Elbin, who had worked on Prime 1, you know, he had been there all the way up and through everything, yeah. you know, eventually, eventually he left and now he's a, he's a lead over at Blue Point. Um, but you know, at that time up to tropical freeze, you know, he had worked on every single retro game ever from its inception. So, um, you know, he was a font of information, you know, on, on things and, and a tremendous artist. Um, so yeah, just working with him weren't a ton. Um, and sometimes you learn soft skills too, you know, you just learn how to interact with people. And that's something as an art director that it's not a taught skill, but you learn it, um, just by watching people who are good communicators and, and are able to teach you in a cohesive way and then, you know, pass on that knowledge because that's what a lot of art direction is. It's just the passing of knowledge. Um, and so I learned a lot of skills just from that, from talking with, with these, you know, to my mind, giants that, that had created, you know, games that I, I, you know, was in college playing. Like yeah. you know, I remember being in college, picking up Prime One, being like, "Holy shit!" You know, like, I want to work on this kind of thing. So yeah. Speaking of Prime, because I know I know you left retro because you wanted to move more into design, and you felt limited. Well, no, I mean, I mean, I left I left retro because it's kind of a, you know. Well, so the the thing with retro and Nintendo in general is I'll say this is that you get to work on Nintendo IP which is incredible and like I am the biggest like I have a Zelda tattoo you know like I mean like many people oh, do, wow. you know like I, I yeah I I love I love Nintendo I always will but the thing is outside of your small contribution to like the level that you worked on like I got to design like the clock tower windmill like that's awesome and I'm proud of that but like you are never gonna get to 
make decisions on the core of the game mm. right like yeah. like on you know whether uh, you know metroid prime 4 or, and I, this was you know i left years years before prime 4 was a thing but i'm just going to throw an example like whether or not metroid prime 4 is uh you know, super dark and gritty or more anime influence. Like you'll never get to decide that, you know, that comes from Japan, you know, like that's how it is. Nintendo is the parent company and there's an umbrella that you're under. And so that was like frustrating to me um, on, on uh, a, a couple of situations where, you know, I felt like the art team myself, we had like these really cool ideas that we really wanted to push through and and we didn't have the authority to to do it and and that's all i'll say about that you know you know so it's like so it was frustrating and 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 as i got older in my career i i wanted to be more in a position where i could actually help really define what the core of the game was going to be um and that's kind of what led me to you know my my you know career pivot into art direction from just doing you know environments um so that's 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 why i left in in 2015. Mm. The reason why I ask is um, obviously you left Retro and Retro wasn't working on Prime 4. And I know you're a Metroid fan. Yeah. But when they got announced to work on Prime 4, was there a part oh, of yeah. you who was like, oh, damn it, I could have been working yeah, on yeah. it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Without a doubt. 100%. I was like, son of a bitch. <laughs> you know? So, you know, yeah, of course. Um, yeah, there's there's no doubt. Um, and, and, it's, and it's funny because, you know, when I joined Retro, um, I wasn't the biggest Donkey Kong fan. I had played Donkey Kong Country 1 on the SNES, and I was a huge fan of that. I mean, when it came out, it, you know, it was groundbreaking, but I never played I never played Diddy's Conquest, um, and I never played uh, um, uh, Country 3. Um, and I had played Returns when I found out I'd gotten the job interview. And I was like, because I was like, all right, I need to play the last game that, that they made, so I should, <laughs> I should play this. But after working on, on, on Tropical Freeze, like, I became like a diehard fan because like i just you just learn how brilliant those games are because i mm. played once i'd gotten the job i was like i need to go back and educate myself and i went back and played all of the original rare games and then i you know i played through returns and and i was like holy crap these games are brilliant um you know and the only reason why i didn't play uh kong uh return oh god don kong country two and three was because at that point i had transitioned to a playstation and yeah, 64 yeah. and all that um but uh but yeah but um but yeah, but you know, Metroid would have been would have been sweet. <laughs> yeah, I wanted so. to ask you about Metroid Dread because I saw some comments you made on Twitter about mm-hmm. it, which I found interesting. Particularly one um, where you said anyone that thinks Dread is better than Super Metroid is probably smoking crack. Oh, um, absolutely! <laughs> and don't get me wrong, I I think Dread's a phenomenal game, but it it just it can't hold the candle to Super Super Metroid. So, so. what? So what are your thoughts on Dread after playing it? Uh, I mean, I think it was it was really well designed. It it, it suffered, for, in my opinion, from a couple of things. Um, controller spaghetti, where there was too many button configurations to do things, and like my hands are cramping playing. <laughs> uh, there was too many difficulty spikes and 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 boss battles and stuff like that. And and personally, feeling I felt like some of the environmental storytelling um, could have been. Um, I pushed up a bit. Like I, there were areas where I'm like, oh man, this would have been like really cool if they could have like, you know. Um, and I'll give you an example. Like spoiler, you fight Creed, right? It was in yeah. the trailer, and that was a huge moment. But like they never explained what the hell Creed is doing there. 
They never explain like why Kraid is still alive. And granted, there is coolness to that, like having that mystery of like, mm. why is Kraid here? But I'm like, wouldn't it have been cooler if like instead of that one creature that's in the background and like the there was like the machines like operating on it, it was like a giant dead creature, and you end up finding that as a boss later on when the power comes on and the X Parasite possesses it. But like, what if that was like Kraid back there? Because then you could start to say, like, oh, man, they're studying the car- the cart. They've gotten the carcass of Kraid somehow. You know, it's his dead body. And then, like, when the ex-parasite brings it back to life and then you fight Kraid, I'm like, that would have been a cool kind of na- environmental narrative storytelling, you know, rather than just some, like, random creature that you've never seen before. So, like, little things like that. And I'm nitpicking and Metroid fans are probably like, this guy doesn't know what the hell he's talking about. And that's cool. And I get it. You know, like, I'm, I'm in the minority. I, I-, I think Dread was a phenomenal return to form for the metroid franchise and i'm super excited to see where the series goes forward i played it finished it loved it but yeah there was like little nitpicks there because when you think about how perfect super metroid is it's like they just deliver on a narrative through line in that game that's just like everything just flows together perfectly the difficulty never spikes to where you get frustrated with it it's just like it's paced really well um the environmental flow of going from environment to environment feels like really natural um so yeah i don't know i just don't think that that as good as dread is i don't i just don't think it just is as solid as super metroid is and that part of that could be nostalgia you know i played that game when it shipped in 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 94 you know i was 14 years old and it's just like this is the best thing ever so there is probably some of that i i I admit that for sure Mm. but now like obviously because you've moved into a different role can you understand like other aspects of obviously rather than just art but other aspects of design that are very hard i mean you talk about pacing right and mm-hmm. super metroid's pacing being great but it's actually rare that you play any game that has really good pacing like all yeah. the way through it's it's very very hard to get right oh absolutely and uh and you know and, and as as an art director i think you need to be dangerous in that you understand just enough to to be dangerous you know like you need to know enough of like every discipline to kind of you know communicate with those teams and stuff like that so like i'm no designer but like i understand enough of design where i can you know talk to designers and understand what their intent is and how they want to solve those problems and how that relates to the artistic side of the game development um but uh but yeah but if you asked me to design a cohesive metroidvania style map you know like i would not know where to begin you know like maybe with enough time and, and effort and really studying games like symphony of the night super metroid you know dread Ari of sorrow you know games like that i could probably eventually come to something kind of cool but but again you know like that that's a that's a skill set in and of itself yeah I noticed that you've bounced around to a lot of different studios. Sometimes you're a permanent employee. Sometimes you, you're doing contract work. Mm-hmm. But do you actually enjoy jumping around like that? No. And, and a lot of that is, is just layoffs, you know, like just, you know, you, you don't have a choice. It's the company, you know, like I was at Square Enix and I was a lead there and working on original IP and they they canceled the game and, and, and closed the uh, development team that was there. And so that was like an... I think like six or seven, I don't remember how long it was, but, but that was a really short stint and, and just like, all right, you know, I guess I'd have to find a new job now. Um, you know, and, and, and some of it was contract where it's like, okay, you know, like I was at Bioware for six months working on Andromeda and that was a mixed thing of like, I wasn't really enjoying my time on that project, but also like I was like 
I got an offer to lead up uh, uh, Indivisible. And I was like, well, this is contract. I don't think they're going to convert me to full time. Um, and my contract is six months. And so I think it's time for me to kind of, you know, not kind of ask for a contract, re, you know, re-up. Um, and so, you know, let the contract end and then moved on there. So, so it's a mix of unfortunate circumstances and sometimes just finding a better fit, um, you know, where, where it pertains to my skill set. But does that cause a bit of anxiety though? Like if you're having to worry about where you're going to be working in the next six months or like, yeah, I mean, laid off or, you know, I mean, layoffs are always a fear in game development. I mean, I've been doing this for 20 years and I've, you know, been part of layoffs. I've been part of studios that have had layoffs where I didn't get laid off and that's stressful in and of itself. Um, so that's, that's always something that you worry about when you're, when you're working in games, especially if you're working at an independent developer. Um, you know, I never really worried about layoffs when I was at retro, um, just never crossed my mind. Um, and contract, yeah, contract, you're, you're kind of taking a chance of like, Hey, maybe my contract doesn't get renewed or, you know, maybe they decide that they don't need contractors at the end of the project and, you know, they're going to cut them out. Um, and that's a calculated risk. Um, you know, I, I uh, during the pandemic, I worked a, a six month contract at Armature um, on Resident Evil uh, 4 VR. Yeah. Um, and yeah, and again, that was another situation where I was like, okay, this is a, a contract and it could end with me getting converted to full time or it could end with me getting, you know, just kind of let go. And you take that, you take that risk. Um, and it could lead to anxiety, but I was in a good situation financially where I was like, even if I am out of work for couple of months it's not going to hurt me so i could take that risk i'm fortunate enough to be in that situation where you know other people aren't as fortunate and they you know need a consistent job where even you know a one month lapse in employment is going to be financially very difficult i'm i'm fortunate that i wasn't in that situation um the times that i've taken a contract um where i could say okay you know i could take this risk and a lot of times too you know you start to realize okay this contract's coming to an end i should probably start looking for what's next and make sure that I have that kind of jumping off point. So I'm not caught, you know, with my pants down when, when the time comes to, to find a new kind of uh, position. Mm. um, Yeah. But it it must require a certain level of, of skill to be able to move from uh, studio to studio and adapt quite quickly. Yeah. I mean, you know, every studio will have its own way of doing things. Yeah. And that, and that was the funny thing about, you know, when I, when I joined retro and everyone was looking at my, my portfolio and my resume and they're like, Oh my God, he's worked on uncharted. That must mean that, you know, retro is working on a Zelda game. And I'm like, that still happens now with all the new people being employed. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm just a versatile artist. You know, I could do, I could do realistic stuff. I could do cartoony stuff. You know, I, I'm, I'm adaptable. And I think, to have longevity in this industry, you need to be adaptable. I mean, I think it's easier now to find your niche and and kind of really settle into something that, that but I think when I was, you know, working more as a production artist, I think I had more of a kind of like every man kind of skill set. Whereas like I can work on Uncharted, I can work on Donkey Kong, I can work on Brutal Legend and not skip a beat. Um, but, you know, nowadays I think it's a, you can get a little bit more specialized um, for mm. sure. 
stuff. Do you ever read like a lot of these rumors? I mean, particularly when you're at Retro and you see all the rumors and all the stuff that comes out, and obviously oh, yeah. it spirals out of control. I mean, yeah, I, well, I, we, were, I, we were all laughing. We laugh about it. It's just like what? Um, I mean, I, I've obviously spoken to a lot of ex-Retro devs, and I see some stuff on YouTube, and I'm like, this isn't even right. This is like wrong information, and then it gets yeah. compounded because it goes viral. So you guys must sit there and just laugh at it. Oh, totally. Yeah. You know, and sometimes and sometimes it's frustrating because it creates um, false expectations. You know, exactly, and that, yeah. I think that happened when we announced Tropical Freeze. You know, yeah. everyone was like, "Oh, they're working on a Zelda game. They're working on a Zelda game." It's like, nope. <laughs> and we announced Tropical Freeze, and it looks phenomenal, and it's gorgeous looking, and then people are like, "Oh, but it's another Donkey Kong," and then you know, people are shitting on it, and you know, on NeoGaf or whatever, and you're like, "Oh man, well, because everyone yet yeah, thought we were doing a Zelda game, and it's like, no, that's you know not what we do." So. So yeah, it's a bit both. Sometimes we laugh at it. Sometimes it, it, it gets frustrating when it kind of carries on for a little bit too long and you're like, all right, you know, I wish I could just get out there and say, no guys, we're doing Donkey Kong. You know, <laughs> like this is what it is. So um, yeah. Yeah, that must be frustrating. Uh, how do you find moving from like realistic graphics to stylized graphics? Because obviously you've done stuff like Mass Effect Andromeda and Uncharted 3, and you even obviously the VR of uh, Resident Evil 4 and stuff, and then you're working on something like Donkey Kong, which is like totally yeah. the other side of the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. and uh, you know, and even what I'm, I'm art directing right now is very stylized. Um, it's, uh, it's just a different set of challenges, you know? Um, any stylized game, you have to take the core essence of what it is you're trying to communicate visually and strip it down to its its necessities. And and when you're dealing with something realistic, it's it's all about like the details and and kind of like what is it that makes this object what it is, and kind of communicating that clearly, and and making sure that you have the right mix of details and the right amount of details where they should be and omitting them where they shouldn't be, and so. It's just balancing the visual kind of language of each thing, you know, like stylized stuff tends to be more in form and color, you know, uh, realistic stuff tends to be more on, you know, like high frequency uh, noise and where how the object reacts to light. Um, so you kind of have to just judge on what it is you want to communicate and just kind of make a, a judgment clause. And, and, and I, to be clear, you know, like, I'm so rusty on my on my realism. Like if I was to apply it Naughty Dog today, I don't even know if I would be able to because like looking at what they did with like Last of Us Two, yeah, versus versus Uncharted Three, you know, it's night and day. Yeah, you know, like the the, totally. the technology has leapfrogged so far ahead that I'm like I'm in awe of what you know like Naughty Dog is doing today. So I'm like I don't even know if I can hang with those <laughs> with those folks anymore. You know, um, but uh, but I've always I've always gravitated to stylized things even. Even like what I like to call like stylized realism, you know, um, like I would argue that what's a good example. Um, I would argue a game like almost like it's kind of an old example now, but Castlevania Lords of Shadow, right? Like you would say it's a realistic game, but I would call that like stylized realism where it's presenting itself. It's rendering realistic, but characters proportions are stylized. The right. environments are kind of stylized, exaggerated. The lighting is exaggerated, whereas a game like last was part two it's like you're recreating reality you know mm. and, and there is some you know they do push things as well in there but but they tend to go more on the realism side so i've always gravitated to more of the stylized realism in in terms of like my own art um or just going foreign stylized uh so for me personally like if i was to um 
you know, art direct, like uh, a game that came from, you know, just my head. Um, that's the kind of art style that I would want to do something that's like more of like a, um, realistic ish, but, but with like stylistic flourishes. Yeah. So. But I suppose the thing about stylized graphics is it doesn't age the way realistic graphics do. Right. I mean, oh, you totally. mentioned The I mean, Last of Us 2, I mean, and how it's leapfrog from Uncharted 3. I mean, if you go back and play some of those older three, 360 PS3 games, you're like, oh, this looks a bit dated. But with like a stylized game, you know. It's well, yeah, I mean, when, when Uncharted 3 shipped, I mean, it was considered, uh, you know, like state of the art. You mm. know, it was like, you know, like the best looking game of, of I would argue, of that year. Um, you look at it now and you're like, Oof, that didn't age that well. But then you look at a game like Wind Waker, you know, and Wind Waker yeah. looks just as amazing even before the HD port yeah. on, on Wii U. Like it, it looks amazing uh, just as much as it did when it came out in what was that, 2002, 2003. Um, and, and, and so, yeah, like I'm always kind of hypersensitive to that of like, you know, pursuing technology for technology's sake. Like there is an art to that and seeing like what Epic is doing with that, uh, matrix demo and stuff like that like that's yeah. amazing but but you know if i were to work on something like that i think i'd be bored to just try and recreate reality um i'd, I'd rather you know create something that's gonna inspire your imagination and, and transport you someplace you know like that's you know you don't see when you look at your window and stuff like that you know mm. um so, so how do you how do you stay up with what's going on like in terms of everything from a technological standpoint from things from an art standpoint Obviously, there's always improvements there, and then what you got to play games as well to to say yeah, what's going on. I mean, but... I mean, it's it's you know, like I said again, I I try to educate myself enough to be, you know, able to carry a you know a conversation and understand. But like, I don't know enough of it to like, if you were to sit me down and say, okay, you need to make this environment now. I, I'd be like, shit, all right, I, I need to spend like a month in Unreal 5 and, and kind of start learning mega scans and, and get into Quixel. And so I understand the technologies that are going to it and I understand some of the tools that are being used, but the ins and outs, the day-to-day of how to actually build this stuff, I would have to I would have to educate myself on that. So, so, you know, I read up on things. I always constantly try to um, look at things through an artistic eye, even when I don't have time to work on my own art. Um, I've been in a little bit of a... Of an, funk when it comes to my personal stuff but but i always try to keep an eye on things from a creative standpoint and and try to understand it and look at it you know critically and try to kind of pick it apart um and then yeah and then when i play i don't play games as much as i would like but i, I do pick the ones that i really like i just finished playing tunic and tunic was like outstanding it was like such an incredible game like visually like minimalist but gorgeous in the way they're using their their lighting and their like depth of field um you know uh so you know even when i'm playing a game i'm looking at it from a critical eye it sometimes sucks like i sometimes just want to play a game but i I always kind of try and look at it from from that you know and then i'll take screenshots and send it to team members and be like look at this this is awesome we should be referencing this you know kind of thing so um but then also just try to to open myself up to other medium as well and not just you know i i sometimes it's very easy to get tunnel focused on the game industry but try to you know, watch movies, read books, you know, go to museums, look at other forms of art um, so that I stay well-rounded in my kind of my, my well of, of, um, of reference and taste. Um, I think it's important to be a well-rounded artist and not just, you know, 
looking at the kind of like coolest things that inspire us, you know, like my favorite things of like my favorite Zelda game. And, you know, I love Star Wars and Lord of the Rings, but it's like to look at things outside of that, you know, to, to look at the, you know, films that inspired those films and, and kind of, and then what inspired that filmmaker, um, you know, so it's like, a, you know, the, the example everyone knows is like Seven Samurai inspired a lot of Star Wars. It's yeah, okay, that's right. what inspired, what inspired Kurosawa, you know, I can go to the source. Um, Wind Waker, you know, like what inspired that art style? And the name escapes me, but there's an animated, uh, uh, I think it's a, it's a Japanese film, animated, and you look at it and you're like, holy shit, like this is exactly where they got their art direction for Wind Waker. And it's like an old film from, I think like the 60s. Um, and it's it's gorgeous. But like, so it's like, you know, you sometimes you need to deconstruct and look at things and, you know, um, see where the where the source comes from just to to kind of keep your mind fresh so that when it does come time to create art you're you're pulling from a well of knowledge that isn't just what you see like in another game and things like that Hmm. because that's that's like fun and it's also easy to do too it's like oh man you know like the classic example is like oh the art director who played a new game that weekend and then comes in on monday is like this is what we got to do you know (laughs) so like and then trust me the 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 pull to do that is really strong and sometimes you play something and you're like oh man you know yeah well that's right uh you watch something or you play something and that influences the design that you're you're working on currently sometimes yeah i suppose you have to know when to pull when to pull back on that and not go too far with it yeah i mean that's you know especially when you're also looking at um something that's a direct influence like like without going into detail like the the current game i'm looking at now there's a couple of key points of reference that we have that are from other media and you want to you want to capture the essence of what that is so people when they see it they're like oh i see the influence but they don't look at it and say oh my god they just copied it whole cloth you know like a prime example there was a bit of a kerfuffle on kotaku and there's like this indie game that's very clearly using the style of Link's awakening right um and it's gorgeous like the game is incredible looking but like they are very clearly just copying that art direction. And I'm like, that's cool. But my take that art direction and put a new spin on it. Try and maybe give something new to it. Because otherwise you're just, you know, kind of tracing over the work, kind of, so to speak. And, well, can't you get sued um, for something like that? No, Does you it? can't get sued for that because they're not stealing the art pole quad. You can't copyright an idea, you know. So like, I think it, I think it's awesome to be influenced with it. And I'm excited to see a game because I, I think the 2019 Link's Awakening remake is gorgeous and I love that art style. So I'm excited about this indie game, but part of me is also like, you know, like maybe don't directly copy that influence, but take the essence of like the tilt shift diorama, you know, that's the kind of essence of what that game was and then maybe put your own spin on it. So that's kind of what I'm hoping to do. And maybe when the game I'm working on comes out, people will think otherwise, but I I think it's important to try and capture the essence of it but also put your own spin on on something Mm -hmm. so as as your uh art director now and you're more in a mentoring role do you sometimes does it motivate you to get better at your artwork like you'll see uh uh, artists and be like oh my gosh i need to up my game (laughs) oh no all the the time that's the the you know the imposter syndrome we were talking about earlier you know it's like but I firmly believe this is that sometimes um, the best artist isn't necessarily the best art director. 
And sometimes you don't want to put your best artist as as art director because I'd create very little art for the game, you know, because I have my hands full doing a lot of like, you know, reviewing and seeing things. And when I can, I do make art and because I still love it. But um, yeah, I mean, all the time, you know, I'll see some something an artist would do and I'm like, holy shit, that's incredible. Like, you know, but and then I'll, you know, I'll ask them, like, how did you do that? Or, you know, take a look at the file as I'm reviewing it and be like, oh, shit. OK, so that's how they're doing it, you know. But then other times there's there's fundamentals where I come in and I'm like, no, it should be done this way. And my experience, you know, understanding the fundamentals um, means that then I can communicate on a basic level and say, hey, you know, this should be modeled this way or the colors in this texture should be configured this way. Um, so that wealth of experience comes in that way. So like even though like I may not currently be at the technical level to um, – you know, create like a character from like The Last of Us. You know, I still understand modeling and the fundamentals of it so that I can look at something and be like, that's a really clean mesh or the proportions of that character or the anatomy is correct on that character, you know? Um, you know, so so understanding the different facets of, of what goes into it means that I can then kind of use my experience and my my kind of uh, knowledge to to guide an artist to to get the right, you know, to along the right path to to get the asset to where it needs to be. Mm. But, but do you prefer? But, yeah, I mean, it, but do you prefer being in the mentoring role as opposed to being in the trenches more and doing the artwork? Absolutely. Um, you know, I do miss the, making art. You know, I, I try to do it on the side. Like I said, I've been in a little bit of a funk. But um, you know, like when it when I get that itch to make something, I'll set aside time in my schedule to make it for the game, or I'll do something after hours and 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 kind of work on it there. Mm. Um, cause I think it's, it is important to, to keep your skills sharp as an artist and, and kind of work on things. So within the style that I'm working on within the, the platforms that I'm, I'm working on, like my skills are, you know, robust, but like I said, like if you wanted me to work at Epic on the, on the matrix demo, like that's probably out of my wheels, but, but I keep my skills relevant to the project that I'm working on. So, so everything that I'm working on in my current role, like, if I was asked to be like, hey, we have an artist who's on, um, you know, sick leave or something like that, you need to fill in and I would have no problem stepping in and doing that. Um, and I make sure that like my skills are always kind of like to that level of, of where I'm at right now. But but um, but yeah, it's hard to juggle sometimes to to, you know, because it's a full time job making art. And my job right now is, you know, making sure that the schedule is kind of on track and that I'm looking at the project from a holistic level and making decisions that not just affect the artist's work today, but affect their work three months down the line. Because any decision I make today on something could have ramifications down the road, and I have to be cognizant of that. So that's a full-time job in of itself. So, you know, when you're creating art, you need to be focused on, like, the task at hand and not thinking at, like, a million other things that are affecting the project. So it's a, it's a different basket of thought that you have to kind of compartmentalize. Mm. Um and and so it could get a little bit overwhelming to kind of switch gears like that. Like, all right, now I have to suddenly make art assets. Um, but but I try to where I can, but it, it's hard. Mm. I bet it is. It sounds it sounds hard just hearing you talk about it. Um, I know I know uh, it's it's late there, so I'll I'll wrap up. But um, before before I. I go and let you go um where is the best place for people to follow you if they want to keep up to date with everything uh, that you're doing i mean i'm i'm on twitter uh at von 
I think it's Von underscore cause. I think I, I've been taking a little bit of. A, I've been, I could find out and, and put it in the in the. Description I've been taking. I've been taking a little bit of a break from Twitter for my mental health. Oh, fair um, enough. It's, yeah, it's uh, it's it's pretty bad at times. Yeah, it's so, some days. Um, no, it's a, at Von Cause, all one word. Okay. All right. Yeah, it's, it's see. I was thinking of my Instagram handle, which is another place people can find me. It, and on Instagram, it's underscore cause von underscore cause. Mm. So yeah, and then my personal website is landofcause.com, and that has a a bunch of my artwork on it, including the book that I just wrote um, is is uh, represented on there as well. Um, yeah, so, Anna, isn't it? Anna. Ar- ar- armor. Armor. Yeah. Which um, is Latin yeah. for weapon. Yeah. Um, oh, is it? So yeah. Um, so it's a whole book of weapons and short stories about them. And that was like a multi-year process to fit. I think that's probably why I'm in a bit of a funk after working on that book. It was like like a pretty long endeavor to finish it. Um, but it was a lot of fun. And it, that was a situation where I went with like my art style that I want, which was more realistic, but stylized and, you know, just kind of like telling a story, stories um, in a minimalist kind of way. Yeah. So, um, but yeah. Oh, I wish I could go into detail more. I could speak, speak to you for hours, but um, I'll let you yeah, go. I mean, I'll let you go have some dinner. Um, <laughs> so uh, yeah, and people can check out your artwork on ArtStation because it's still there, I believe, as well. Yeah, it's yeah. it's a little out, outdated. I haven't updated it in a while. Um, but uh, but yeah, there on my website yeah. um is is probably the, the most recent stuff. And yeah, and if you ever want to hear me wax poetic about random stuff on Twitter, I I post from <laughs> time to time. Um, so yeah. Cool. All right. Well, that is the show, everyone. Make sure you share, like, and subscribe. And until next time, stay safe.